Okay, week five, final week, Pillars of the Reformation. Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, uh, we've gathered today uh, for no other reason than to celebrate your glory and to, um, to, to give you the honor and the praise. We're going to do that in worship in a few minutes, but we want to pause and just take time to reflect on one of these principles, this last principle um, of the Reformation. We do so asking for your help to understand these things and to apply them to our lives in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... Um, the last one, sola deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Um, definition, Cambridge Declaration. We reaffirm that because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God, it is for God's glory and that we must glorify Him always. We must live our entire lives before the face of God under the authority of God and for His glory alone. We deny that we can properly glorify God if our worship is confused with entertainment, if we neglect either law or gospel in our preaching, or if self-improvement, self-esteem, or self-fulfillment are allowed to become alternatives to the gospel. Um, I only underlined two things today uh, that just... The rest of it's pretty just easy language, but just to clarify, what does it mean to glorify um, God? Um, and this comes from the shorter catechism, was it chief in demand to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Christians worship a personal and infinite God, the Creator who is both loving and holy. We were made to glorify Him. Glorify means to give honor and praise. and then, But we've also been talking about glory on Sunday mornings with Samuel. Uh, it's kind of a major theme in the book of Samuel. Um, this glory or the heaviness of God, the weight of God, the, um, the illustration being in ancient times a king would wear, literally wear his glory, his clothing, his vestments, his, his jewels, his crown, all of that. Uh, his armor even was always more magnificent, heavier than everybody else's, um, just to kind of show that he was more important. And that's the idea behind that word in Hebrew, um, you know, giving God glory or honor, <clears throat> is that he's, he's, uh, he's more famous than anyone else. It's kind of one way to put it. A couple of scripture references there. Um, why don't we take a look at them just a little Job of that. So um, Isaiah 48, verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Um, so it says it twice, which always means, please listen to this, this is important. Um, God does what He does in saving and refining His people for His own sake, for His own glory. Um, and then Romans 11. Somebody know that by heart. 36. Uh, yeah, just off the top of my head. For of him and three heaven to him are all things. That's right. Glory forever. Amen. Uh-huh. 
That's great. I'm glad you turned to it first. And... Sounded, sounded like you knew what. Okay. Um, before the face of God, uh, I think this Latin Quran Deo um, is kind of a uh, big principle in the 90s. <laughs> kind of got to got re- replay. Um, but this is not just an act of formal worship, but that all of our actions are meant to be informal acts of worship. So um, 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, right? So um, not just Sunday morning worship hour, but I'm living my life before the face of God. Jerry Bridges, um, in his book on godliness, talks about that principle of godliness. Like We get it confused a lot of times with holiness, but what it actually kind of refers to is living your life as though God is always sitting right next to you, kind of like it's um, thinking, you know, factoring God into your daily life, your work, your school, um, you know, your home life, your family life, your, your play, you know, even when we're playing soccer, we're doing it before the face of God, which means this is not just about crushing our opponents and tripping the pastor. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but but we're living. I'm just kidding. But we're doing it before the face of God. We're we're trying to, you know, honor God in our actions, our words, um, all those things, right? And so everything we do is is essentially an act of worship. Um, historical background here, you know, with the glory thing is is really just the first principle of Genesis one that we were made human beings were created in God's image. And um, there's a lot of uh, work in both archaeology and sociology and historical background, cultural background stuff in the 20th century. Um, Meredith Klein and, and some others just kind of unpacked the, the idea that what it means to be made in God's image. Um, in context, in the ancient Near East, there was this, this idea that um, a king or an emperor or a ruler can't be everywhere at the same time around the kingdom. And so they came up with this really natural idea of I'm going to make monuments to myself all over the place. And so, you know, in your little town, you may never see the emperor, right, uh, of Assyria or whatever. Uh, the king of Assyria was never going to visit your town, but there would be a monument of some kind to him. And whenever you saw that, you knew this town belongs to him. And that was the idea. And so what they're saying is that Genesis 1, it says, I'm making you in my image and I'm telling you to fill the earth and subdue it. Basically, you're going to be my little representatives and you're going to fill the earth and everybody's going to look at you and realize the earth belongs to Yahweh. It's that kind of image. is that um, <clears throat> we're like little monuments, basically, to God made in his image. That's, that's the idea. And so um, a good resource for kind of what that, you know, how, to, how that plays itself out in our lives, classic book, Desiring God by John Piper. Um, yeah, so, um, which changes the chief end of man to glorify God by enjoying him forever. 
which we'll, we'll give him a pass on that. All right, so um, the other of you, so where did this come from? What, what's the point of it? Why is this one of the five pillars of the Reformation? Um, what it's speaking against is the idea that was common in um, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions of veneration. Okay, so um, there was, there still is a level of adoration that's given to the saints and to the Virgin Mary that um, that we as Protestants would reserve for God alone. Okay, now to be fair, they don't give the same. You know, on paper at least, um, there is a distinction made between the type of glory they give the Trinity and the type of or honor that they give to everybody else. But we would say that's still inappropriate. All created things are subservient to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and therefore only they, only God gets the adoration um, that, you know, that we would call honor or glory. And so we rejected the idea of veneration. Um, and giving saints any any measure of glory, um, <clears throat> Mary as well. So that's kind of where it comes from. And then uh, I would just add to that, um, kind of on the on the other side of the spectrum, you've got this man centered approach to the Christian life, which is more common now in our churches and Protestant churches. This idea that um, you know, maybe over heightening, you know, we're made in God's image, but we're not God. And so, uh, but sometimes the Christian life can be about human feelings or human decisions or how to get humans in the door or, you know, kind of playing to interest groups within the church, things like that. And then less on directing attention to the true God. And this can and often does occur in uh, churches. This does not mean that human emotions, etc., play no role in worship, but they are not the reason we do things. Okay, so this applies in the way we do church. It also applies in the way we think about and talk about salvation. Um, God alone gets the glory for what has happened in the person and work of Jesus and how it's applied to us, and God alone gets the glory for um, you know why we gather for worship and the way in which we worship, and that's why we're careful to only do things that. God has prescribed that we do in worship. That's why in our church we pretty much stick to the regular principle of worship, if you've heard of that. Basically, we, we are only going to worship God in ways that God has asked us to worship Him. So, no drama, dance during worship. I don't know, dance is debatable, but the, there, there are some things that definitely skirt the lines of what is appropriate um, in worship. So, not here, but... Um, can y'all think of anything that I missed? Anything that might fit there? Why don't we jump into the questions there at the bottom? Number one, give some examples of what it means to glorify God outside of Sunday morning worship. Quiet time. Hmm? Quiet time. Yeah, personal. Reflection, study, prayer. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, if you're, say, playing soccer at the park and going 
striving for a goal and you do it with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, not haphazardly, but uh, fervently, the glory of God, that would be another example. That's right. Maybe ignorantly, fervently, and passionately. How about you? Is specifically what you know. What do you do as a Christian if you've got a bad boss, you know, or cruel, cruel taskmasters, or this use? Like, what do you? How do you respond to that? It says, "Work as unto the Lord." Like, you know, focus less on the negative aspects of the hard, you know, the hard thing of doing it under somebody that you don't necessarily respect, but. Work as I told you. Okay. <clears throat> I would say too, you know, this is a big one um, for you too. Just thinking about relationships, honoring God in, in the way and the way you do friendships, the way you do dating relationships, the way you um, interact with um, prospective future spouses and things like that so keeping that in mind that's very good yep okay here's the this is kind of the where the rubber meets the road on this one for me um, is there such a thing as secular versus sacred you know what I mean by that? So, like, for instance, um, common in Christian circles is the idea that some music is Christian and other music is not. And what makes something Christian is that it's obviously talking about Christian things and was created by Christians for that purpose versus music that is not obviously Christian because it doesn't have necessarily Christian themes or ideas built into the song. So that would be sacred versus secular, right? Secular music being anything that wasn't created for that purpose. Um, do you think that's a biblical distinction? Not a loaded question, I'm just asking because I think it's it's an important topic. We're to be in the world but not of it. So we're going to be exposed to it. You can't hide yourself from it. That's how I see that. Good point. Like, on one hand, it's all gods. So there's not as if there's like a that receptacle right there is sacred because it Focus, focused over or whatever, but I do think there's a distinction with regard to whether or not things are being used in the service of the kingdom or not. 
but not that it's in itself sacred or secular because it's all God's. But there are things that are <coughs> used in the service of the kingdom or not. But not a distinction between things being secular or sacred. Like the talent. You don't have that talent without being an individual God. Right? Yeah. I suppose so. <coughs> I've never heard it put that way before. There are things that are used in the service that can't be things that are not. Yeah. And there are certainly professions or things or actions that are outside the boundaries that God has prescribed in Scripture, right? So I can't be a prostitute to the glory of God. But, yeah. Okay. There are ditches, maybe, is a good way to think about it. Like, one ditch that, you know, it it does bug me that we have, that we put Christian as an adjective in front of a lot of things. Like, you walk into a Christian bookstore. Why is it a Christian bookstore? Because they sell Christian gum and Christian, you know, bookmarks and Christian keychains. And they literally have Christian mints. Have you seen these things? But they also have books that are questionable. <laughs> yeah. It's like I think I, I think God, God is glorified more by something that is well done with the right intention in terms of honoring Him than He is with something that is done poorly that's just tacky and blatant. Right? Like yeah. you could have a piece of incredible literature that is just profoundly impactful with regard to what it teaches us about God and has done so with that intention in mind, but it wasn't plastered all over with fish and crosses and marketed as such. So I don't know. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's being used in the service of God. I think it's the more helpful distinction because the whole sacred versus secular distinction is unhelpful. And I don't think it exists in the world. Yeah. One of my favorite um, movies is Amadeus. Y'all seen that? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a while ago. It's, right? Yeah, it'd be good to watch it with the kids. It's a little slow at times, but it's about Mozart. Um and uh, a man named Salieri, who was a real man, but I don't know if they ever actually met. But um, Salieri is a court composer, the prince of Austria, and he is an you know an outspoken you know or, you know Orthodox Christian. Like he's he's um, he he writes all of his music intentionally to glorify God. Okay, the problem is he's just not as good at it as Mozart. <laughs> Mozart, however, is a complete buffoon. Like, I mean, in the movie, he's and this is not necessarily historical, but just he was just he's not he's not trying to honor God with his music. He's kind of a, a ladies' man and like just an idiot. And it drives Salieri crazy. Like, he's there's this really moving scene where he's praying to God. Worn out his heart to God, he's mad. He's like, Why did you give that gift to that idiot? Basically, like, he's not using it for you. And, but the reality is, and he ends up basically in the movie, like, in bitterness, kind of helping drive Mozart to his death. And that juxtaposition. Did you spoil the plot? I did. Well, he dies, you know, Mozart dies. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's not like before he finishes. Right now. No, he's still. You gotta watch the movie, anyways. 
But it's it's a beautiful movie because it basically says, look, why did we have Mozart? Because God gave us Mozart. Like, he gave, he gives gifts to man. They may not always honor him intentionally with those gifts, but God gave it. Music comes from God, you know, and so like, we can celebrate and listen to good music and appreciate it. Like, um, one of my, I'm going to be honest here, one of my favorite bands historically, I don't listen to them as much now, is Tool. Now, zero uh, percent intentional glorifying God. In fact, they're probably anti-religious. In fact, I know they are. Um, definitely not supportive of Christian ideals, and, and but I love how tight they they are. Like how tight their rock and roll is. How how orchestral it is. Right and like. And like, I don't care if uh, if uh, you know Maynard ever, you know. I mean, I do care. I would love for him to come to Christ and glorify God, but but he's probably not going to. But like his music, to me, apart apart from the lyrics, at times definitely glorifies God. In fact, that it's it's beautiful, you know. And so it's like those kinds of things as Christians, we have to use discernment. We you know we we realize that things are coming from a particular worldview. Um, but the music itself can be certainly glorifying God. So yeah. I just, yeah. In fact, in these groups are like evaluating atheistic, and you can't help but listen to content, and you're, you can't escape it because so much of their content is meaningful outside of what God created. Sure. And, and that, I find, brings kind of a certain sense of glory to God that you know, even though they want to shake their fists, you know, they're understanding that. It is interesting to me. Like you can listen to some of the, and I, I mean, so some of the music I've listened to has really challenged my faith and, and induced doubts at times. But it's also helped me to understand what unbelievers are thinking and what their, you know, what their approach is to to their unbelief. And um, it's still, I still end up feeling like it's foolish. But at the time, it's like, okay. That's what they're thinking, you know. Um, remember the first time I listened to System of a Down, and and they called it they called the death of Jesus a self righteous suicide. And I was like, that really hit me between the eyes for a while. Like I was really struggling with that. But anyways, um, so we can appreciate good things even if they don't necessarily come from Christians. Um, but listen with discernment. So, all right. How would you describe a man-centered worship service as opposed to a God-centered service? I think God clearly draws a line of smoke machines and light shows. Well, it's a thin line, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's a super thin line. You can go into a totally consumeristic, entertainment-focused service, or, you know, like we here, on the other side of the wall, practicing, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a thin line. But I think it's kind of like, you know, prayerfully, you kind of know it when you see it, I guess. I hate that, but... <laughs> yeah. But what, what, do you, what do you say? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's a style question so much as a, everything we do, there, there tend to be 
reasons, you know, there's an underlying, whether we would, whether it's conscious or unconscious, there are biases and things that we're doing. For instance, when we first started this church plant, um, there was a question of whether or not, you know, like all the other young, hip churches, which I don't know that we've ever been that, but like all the young, hip churches, one of the first things you notice when you walk in is that the lights are down. And you walk into the sanctuary and it's like dark and all the light is focused on the stage. And, you know, to the point where it can actually be hard to even see the people you're worshiping with. And it felt like a concert. You know, it felt like I'm just one of the crowd. We're here to watch them. Well... I made a very conscious decision early on. We're not going to turn the lights down during worship. We're going to leave them up so that you can see everybody else worshiping. Because that's valuable. It's valuable to know I am not alone. This is my church family and we're all here to worship God. We're not here to be entertained. So, But that kind of a decision, why did they turn the lights down? Consciously or unconsciously, they're doing something. They're achieving something by doing that. And is that something that we want to achieve? So that kind of thing would be an example. It's easier to have anonymity and to feel like, you know, you're in a sea of people. That's a great point. That's a great point. And I think that's a challenge. I think it's something that we always need to be uh, thinking about. And, you know, even the prayer time. I mean, one of the early discussions we had was, do we really want a five to ten minute long open prayer time where it's not controlled and people can say anything they want and it could, be, it could get weird and it could get awkward and, you know... Visitors might feel like it's weird, you know, and it's like, well, but we're not doing this for the visitors. We're doing this to make a statement that we think prayer matters and that it's important to us and that it should be part of worship. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I don't care if you think it's awkward, you know, you'll get used to it. That's kind of how we just, it was like, we, that's where we went with it. And it's, yeah, that's great. So. But it is difficult. How does... Uh, and this kind of plays into the question four. How does our consumer mentality affect the way we think about religion? Has it helped spread the gospel or hindered it? Like our oldest, he will go to church, but the entertainment pulls him there. Mm. So he's like exposed. Not that it's always good exposure. I think he can go both ways. Yeah, I don't necessarily have an answer to this question, but I do think it's worth thinking about. Um, a couple of years ago, I was listening to a podcast, I think it was, and it was a pastor in Austin, Texas, big church. And he asked the question, he was like, if over the next 10 years we could plant 
10,000 mega churches across the United States. I think is what he said. 1,000 mega churches. Maybe it was 1,000. 1,000 mega churches in all the major cities across the United States. Um, do you think that would be a good thing? And he said, most American Christians would say, absolutely, that'd be great. And he said, well, guess what? We just finished doing that, and we have less Christians than we did 10 years ago. His point was, and he's a pastor of one of them, so he's like, look, I confess it, but he's like, what we did was, we, we figured out how to market church better than everybody else, so we took all the Christians from all the small local churches and put them into big silos. But it didn't actually help us reach people. It was like, dang, that's really good and really sad, but it's true. It's kind of what we did. But then that in itself is kind of like a numbers-based evaluation. Right? It is. So what about the average growth of the individual Christians that went from the mom-and-pop shop into the you know, Wally World of Churches? You know what I mean? Not that you can really measure it necessarily, but did they grow deeper? Did they grow closer? I'd still say the answer is probably no, but... Case by case, I think it's hard to make a big blanket judgment. I'm not anti-megachurch. I think I just... um, Some of them do better than others at creating community. Yeah, they certainly have their place. You know, they certainly have their place. We've been for a long time trying to find a small, medium-sized PC church. Checked all the right boxes, and it wasn't until our oldest to broadcast publicly invited us to go visit one of these similar churches you're talking about and you know snickering of course because that's not my not my jam so to speak but all right let's do it you know and you walk in and you're right it's it's very yeah. non-invasive it's very uh, welcoming there's no nobody's looking at you can't even see you hardly because of all the other stuff that's going on uh, nothing demands of you it's you go in you get the same token, there was good stuff being done. But it's not like that milk is out there. Yeah. Well, in the case that you're mentioning, and this is all, you know, we all have limited perspective, but like I would say that church is doing a great job reaching unchurched and dechurched people. Personally, I think they are. And, good, and decent content. Yeah. Um, and that, so that's why I said case by case. So yeah. it, but there are big churches in the Memphis area that are pretty much only reaching people who were sick of their little church but are already pretty seasoned Christians. And so, like I think of one church that blew up in East Memphis and it became kind of the cool place to go for mature Christians because they were serious about discipleship. But what happens when you put all those people who are serious about discipleship in one building? You need to be sending them back out. Yeah, like They don't yeah. need to all be there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's great that you've got 2,000 serious Christians in your in the room together, but like, <laughs> what, who are you reaching, you know? And so, and that's, I don't know. I mean, they may be actually really doing a great job, but it, I just I lamented the fact that there were a lot of just decent good churches where people left to go to that church, you know, and it was like and in DeSoto County over the last twenty years, especially in one particular denomination, there's always a cool church and it's like all the all of those people go 
you know, every five years they rotate. And so now we've got these massive sanctuaries that were built when that church was booming. But then now they roped off 75% of the sanctuary because there's just no, because that they're not the cool church anymore. It's sad. It's really sad. So, um, You've also got people that are doing it for business reasons. So, yeah. they'll go to the mega church to shake the right hand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Learn it. Oh, I think I don't know. Yeah, no, that happens. Yeah. yeah. So, which gets us back to the point, like, are we choosing what we do? Are we doing what we do for the Lord God? Is it man-centered or God-centered? So, um, at the end of the day, if somebody tells me, I feel called to this particular fellowship in this place for this reason, and, you know, their their purpose is, is to glorify God, then that, fair enough, right? So, Awesome. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to talk about these things. I pray that it would be helpful to us as we evaluate our lives, uh, that we're living before your face in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.